Welcome to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. I'm Peter Lewis, the Director of the Centre. This week, we'll be diving deep into technology addiction with Carla Wilshire from the Centre for Digital Wellbeing. But first, our wrap of the latest tech news with Digital Rights Watch Chair Lizzie O'Shea and Guardian Australia Managing Director Dan Stinton. I am going to kick off the discussion today with what I think is the biggest news in at least um, tech titan player movement, which is the the move by um, Elon Musk to take a stake in Twitter. And there's been a bunch of hot takes on this. Is this an attempt to reverse what are little creeping moves to place some guardrails around the way that people use my favourite platform for toilets? Or is it um, a power play by Musk to build his empire beyond his existing footprint? Um, I know, Lizzie, you're a sceptic of Elon's um, contribution to to the world, but um, what did you see when you saw him taking this move into Twitter? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was a highlight when he challenged um, Vladimir Putin to a fistfight. So, you know, someone who's clearly skilled in in diplomacy. Um, I think this is really interesting. So he's purchased a whole bunch of stock, 2.6 something billion. So he found some spare change down the back of the couch to get involved in Twitter. Um, and then, you know, was invited to be on the board, as I understand. It's a little unclear and everyone's being very um, diplomatic about it, including Twitter. But uh, in essence, that would have meant that he couldn't acquire more shares in the company and so then of course the deal was off and he was no longer going on the board so I think this might be an instance where that limitation was something he didn't want to contend with and he in fact might find a bit more money uh, to acquire influence over the company not through being on the board but in fact through holding stock. Um, I mean this is a man who has used this platform to uh, pick fights with his enemies to gloat about the fact that the United States may have been involved in a coup in Bolivia to spread disinformation about uh, COVID and treatments for COVID and how it affects children. I mean, none of what I'm saying is defamatory. This is all on on the public record. I think he uses the platform in in its worst possible way uh, and he's an example no one should follow. And I am pretty concerned that he now wishes to it seems, acquire more. We can infer that from how he's behaved because he is a free speed absolutist and I don't think he's really committed to the idea that moderation is necessary to limit harm on that platform, which I think was growing in acceptance among lots and lots of other people. Um, I thought it was also interesting, Robert Reich's piece in The Guardian talking about how he may in fact as a um, as one one initiative that he might take or, or or political issue that he might push is to return someone like Donald Trump to the platform, who, of course, was famously booted off. I wonder whether that's true, but I think it's an interesting observation. Will he prevent those moves in the future? I mean, whether or not he elects to try and pressure the company to to bring um, Trump back on. But I think that the issue is for Twitter that they may have won this particular battle in terms of controlling the company, but there's a bigger war looming. That's my view. Yeah, I've always been interested in what's happened in Twitter in recent years, and there's been a couple of initiatives that I think are quite interesting in that kind of broader piece of building friction into platforms. There's that tool that 
you occasionally get if, if you're um, tempted to retweet an article without reading it that says, hey, do you want to read, <laughs> read the article before you push it further? Um, there's obviously Twitter is ahead of the pack in terms of banning micro-targeting in political campaigns, which I think is a really positive thing as well. And it was also that idea that Twitter, which had really been based around the cult of Dorsey, like another great man in technology, had he'd left and there was this sense that it was going to sort of reconfigure and reconsider itself more as a platform without a guru in charge. And um, I think the the re-emergence of a guru, I don't know if it sends alarm bells, but it kind of, what, why do these platforms need gurus, Dan? And um, what's your take on the, the, the bigger piece? Well, the short answer is they don't need gurus. Uh, and they certainly don't need one for like, like Elon Musk, in my view, because I, I think I share Lizzie's take on this, that I think his instincts are exactly the wrong ones for Twitter, the, the free speech absolutist that he is and the like. I mean, I think Twitter was taking steps and should continue to take steps to go in the other direction. Um, you know, we talked about this before, and I think we differ on this, but I think one thing that Twitter should do is make sure that each uh, account is tied to a person's identity. I think they should limit that. That would limit the amount of um, bots that are on the platform, potentially make the discourse slightly more um, polite, uh, for want of a better term, uh, and would also make it harder for, for foreign governments such as Russia uh, to um, weaponize the service with, with misinformation. And I think, um, yeah, I, I'm troubled that by Elon's intervention here because he, from his public statements, he would he would seem to be taking the, the company or want to take the company in the other direction. That said, I'm, I'm not as concerned about him potentially acquiring this outright. And I, I don't necessarily know if that was the reason why he has declined the board seat. It could be simply that, He's he's run into a whole bunch of trouble from his lack of disclosure in acquiring his stake because he was he was eleven days late in filing his his acquisition of of ten percent of the company or thereabouts to the Securities and Exchange Commission, and that meant that every shareholder that sold shares during that period didn't benefit from the pop in the share price that came about from from Elon's acquisition, and so literally every one of those people could potentially sue Elon for that um, lack of disclosure. So I think that that's, that's potentially one part of it that's contributing to him moving away from it. And I think the other part is just as a director of the company, you can't just throw comments from the cheap seats. You actually have to make public statements which are to the benefit of the company. And that's obviously something, as Lizzie outlined, that, um, that Elon's not very good at. The other point I'd make, and, and I'll finish my monologue, the other point I'd make, though, is it, it could also just be a purely commercial exercise because... If you look at Twitter, I, I kind of regard Twitter as a as very similar to a publisher in a sense, in that it's got a huge cultural influence and, and huge influence over the debate, but yet it hasn't realised that from a commercial point of view, certainly not to the extent that that Google and, and Facebook and, and Amazon have. And so I, I think that there's it could simply be as simple as doing what every other news publisher around the world or most other news publishers around the world have done. And that is embrace a subscription model of some kind in order to realise some of the value of that. And, you know, lots of people speculate about this. This isn't my idea. But I do think there is a real commercial opportunity for Twitter if they were to explore this. And I just make the point, if you compare, I mean, Twitter's got, I don't know, but, you know, millions and millions of users, clearly. Um, from The Guardian's point of view, it's only about 2% of our uh, supporters uh, or 2% of our audience that actually um, contribute to us in, the in, in, in voluntary contributions or subscriptions. They're all and on Twitter just, though, mate. They might all be on Twitter. But my point is that it's 60% of our revenue. So if, if Twitter was able to convert 2% of its massive audience, I think its commercial fortunes could be substantially improved. And so it could have just been a purely commercial 
uh, or that could have been one of the major considerations of why Elon is involved in this. But I guess we'll see. I mean, I guess we'll see whether he's going to rally the troops and, and look to buy it outright in, in time. I guess I guess time will tell. Now, Carla's done something that no one has ever done in this forum, which is politely put up her hand. But are you, Carla, welcome. And are you a Twitter user? Um, I, I don't I don't use that much Twitter, but I do think Dan's picking up on a really important point, and that is, um, and, and I twist it around the other way, you know, a lot of the way in which Elon has made his money is through hype and hype of his own products. Um, so that whether that's Tesla, you know, whether that's kind of the interjections he's done around cryptocurrency, what this gives him is a greater degree, and I think that's what he is building to, um, uh, of a platform that can really kind of extend that level of hype. I mean, he already has, what, 88,000 um, or 88 million, whatever it is, Twitter followers. How does, for instance, building and integrating this platform into and sense his reach um, from a commercial perspective really increase his capacity um, around hyping up some of his other business interests, um, you know, in terms of being able to really control that narrative? And then I think the second thing that I was going to um, really kind of pinpoint on it was, you know, in the debate around self regulation versus regulation, um, does Elon buying into Twitter and starting to take really sort of active interest in sort of undoing some of the, the, the Twitter self-regulation uh, really increase the need for government-led regulation um, and, and really kind of bring that to the forefront. Dig into that in a little bit detail a bit later too, but we'll move around to Lizzie's special topic for this week. Lizzie, Google has been given approval to continuously monitor our every heartbeat via our fit bit surely this is a good thing that means that you know we're not going to be caught um by surprise when our heart starts palpitating in a dangerous um rhythm it's true so you know google acquired fitbit under a cloud of some controversy actually uh in kind of late 2019 the decision was announced and it took some time to take effect for about 2.1 billion dollars and people may know that google's been making um and or entering into the healthcare space and particularly looking at acquiring health information and channels for gathering health information. And this, uh, you know, there, there, there was a, a huge scandal around this called, you know, dubbed Project Nightingale, where which involved essentially Google getting access to a huge amount of health information from hospitals in the United States. Um, but this is also occurring in other parts of the world. But in essence, this doesn't surprise me that they're looking at expanding the capabilities of Fitbit. So what the approval was, to, was to allow Fitbits to continuously monitor people who wear them. And the justification is that it can then detect irregular heartbeats essentially that the person wearing it might not even notice that they have one but then can go and get a diagnosis if they're given an alert to that Uh, and it's got pretty good stats for diagnosing an irregular heartbeat which is interesting I mean the question I have uh, is you know when people essentially put on a Fitbit are they expecting then that Google will be (laughs) monitoring their heartbeat at all times Um, and what kind of capacity is there to turn that off for example but also I, I do wonder whether this is the big thin end of the wedge. Like this is hugely valuable information. It's got um, utility not just for diagnostics and for health-related um, issues, but also all sorts of other potentials there, I think, in terms of what Google's business model is, knowing more about customers and influencing them in all sorts of ways. And there's a physiological component to that as well as a psychological one. And so, you know, I think that this may be a reasonable justification in some respects from a diagnostic perspective. But really, I think we've got a big problem when a massive company like Google 
continuously gets access to more and more data about ourselves, especially in a context in which, you know, traditional regulation of health information has not really considered that a tech company might be collecting information from someone from a device that's probably not considered a medical device. And so the regulatory framework potentially in all around the world, obviously, which is different in different jurisdictions, may be pretty ill-equipped to deal with this. And you can see how it could fall into a gap. Uh, and that means that I think Google is well-placed to take advantage of that you know, regulatory pack, patchwork and an incapacity for lawmakers to keep up with these kinds of developments to make hay while the sun shines for them and gather this material or at least set up these systems for collecting it. So I'm pretty worried about it. I don't own a Fitbit. I don't know if anybody else does. Maybe they can say in the chat if they're prepared to confess. But um, I, I'm fit enough already, as you can tell, uh, so I don't need one. But, um, you know, I do think it is understandable that people who might be worried about having potentially in a regular heartbeat want a way to monitor it. It seems very disappointing to me that then their best option in terms of expense and the like might be to have to rely on Google to do, to, or handing over information to Google in order to do that. But Dan, it's a challenging issue, isn't it? Because on the surface, people will say, yeah, that's a, that's a good use of intrusive technology. Um, where's my Fitbit? Yeah, in isolation, if this is the only reason they are collecting this data, I think it is an unambiguously good thing. The problem, though, just picking up on Lizzie's point, is it's Google collecting it. And Google run the world's largest advertising business, which relies on a huge amount of data in order to serve you target advertising. So I know that I always bang on about this, but it is, again, demonstrating the point of why purpose limitations on the collection and use of data is absolutely critical because this kind of collection of data should be allowed for the purposes that it is saying it is for, or at least in limited circumstances. I've got some reservations about Google being the company collecting it, but nonetheless, you can see the the practical benefit and health benefit application of this kind of use of data. If this data is then used to create a segment or put a whole bunch of the Fitbit users into different advertising segments for the purposes of selling them targeted advertising uh, to insurance companies or for insurance companies to exclude certain people or Would whatever. Would they do that? If you if you had access to all my health information, what, what are you going to target at me, Dan? Well, we're not going to do anything, but my point is that Google could. Google could. And that, that's the problem is that because there are no limitations around the aggregation of this data and because Google is just so damn big, you know, they collect data from so many different areas, then... They could do this. There's nothing to prevent them from doing this. This is why, and again, I know I always bang on about it, but this is why privacy regulation is actually core to so many parts of our lives that people don't realise it. And, you know, they should be allowed to do it. They should be allowed to collect this this data for the purpose that they're saying it is. But the problem is is that Google has form in using this data for many, many other things. So I just wouldn't trust them to do it, which is why, you know, I'm relatively comfortable with Apple doing this because I don't run the world's largest advertising business and therefore they're not going to be tempted to do something like this in a way that I'll never be comfortable with if they're doing it. Darren, in the, what do you in think, the, though, if sorry, the purpose is like we're going to, you know, something wildly expansive, we we use this pro, uh, product to improve other products that we sell. Like, you know, there is a limit to purpose limitation without some other qualitative arrangement. And so that's why you end up having health information regulated differently 
to other kinds of information. Um, and that's one way in which, from a regulatory perspective, that's sought to be dealt with. That's my only worry about purpose limitation. You can just hide so much in legal language, dare I say it. Oh, I, I agree. I mean, I think there still, there still has to be other restrictions around, particularly around health data, right, which is probably the most sensitive form of, of data you can collect. So I, I'm not saying that purpose limitations will be a silver bullet in solving all of this, but this would go some way towards solving it. But I agree, there needs to be other restrictions on a lot of these, on a lot of these sort of things. And I think also, combined with that, I'm also uncomfortable with a few gigantic Silicon Valley companies become becoming the home of all of our health information, regardless. So I think that there's other there's other problems with a with a company like Google collecting this in general, rather than a dedicated health company. But that's perhaps a competition problem more than a privacy problem. But um, anyway, there's a few ways we can come at it. And I, I just say Adam in the chat has um, spoke, shared his own um, Fitbit experience where. If he's not being tracked, his exercise doesn't count. Um, so he's kind of been stalked by his own device, which is which is a terrific um, a terrific experience. There, um, <laughs> Adam's got his hand up too. G'day, Adam. Um, weigh in if you like, and then we'll go to Carla. Hey, sure. Um, yeah, I suppose I was just reflecting on the experience that I used to have with the devices. I've sort of given it away now, but um, I, I do hear that narrative coming through with some. It's like I I haven't done my ten thousand, I haven't done this, and so I you know that is the guiding thing, not how do I feel, you know, should I be going hard or any of that sort of stuff This sort of, you know, as long as the algorithm is kind of telling them that's enough, that, that that's enough. And um, for me, it's, it's much more, um, you know, how do I, <laughs> um, how, how do I want to live? How much, you know, being conscious of what I'm doing, I don't, you know, without the actual um, system need to tell me that, but I was sort of reflecting on the conversation uh, from Dan there around how the data is being used and the, the centrality of it. And, you know, I've got a lot of those concerns, but at the same time, there's sort of a, well, is there a flip side to it that could be positive? And um, I think, you know, one example is, you know, I think there is a health insurer that does give you some kind of rewards or some kind of reduction if you prove that you're doing X number of exercise and then, um, you know, through through a, a tracking device. And so there's a potential consumer benefit then. But on the flip side, you know, we all know our private health insurance keeps going up and up. And it's even during the pandemic when, you know, no one could go out and actually do anything like that. <laughs> how, how, how are costs still going up in that sense? But um yeah, to sort of summarise the thing, well, on the flip side, if you know, if there is a way to um, incentivise positive health behaviour change um, and use that data to sort of prove it, you know, maybe there's a good thing, but I think that gets tied up in discrimination laws around maybe people that just choosing not to have that lifestyle and therefore would feel, well, wait a minute, am I subsidising the the fit? <laughs> Whereas yeah, the fit feel like we're subsidising the unwell. Yeah. So what, that what point you've made there... Yeah, Sorry, Peter, one quick point. That that point you've made there is, as a benefit is exactly the reason or, or one of the main reasons I'm really uncomfortable with this because the whole point of, um, you know, collective insurance, if you like, is that the, the collective um, uh, health of the population um, supports the insurance of everybody, not just those that are the fit and healthy. And I think it, the more we go down this path of relying on this in order to determine insurance premiums, the more we're going to be discriminating against the people that are, uh, unable to to, uh, to keep themselves healthy, which is exactly the wrong direction in my view. Sorry, Peter. Go, Carla. What's your take? Yeah, no. Um, so, well, first of all, picking up on Adam's point, um, and we'll get to addiction uh, later in the show, but um, wearable tech and wearable tech's impact in terms of exercise addiction is is kind of one of the known correlations, um, particularly in the sort of, you know, the psychology industry. Uh, and so I think there's a huge piece around that as well in wearable tech. But, you know, I think one of the other things is to not necessarily see this as just health data. 
Uh, so one of the things that, um, you know, recent studies have shown, and there was a big study to come out of China recently, is that heart rate is a fantastic predictor of mood. Um, so you're not just collecting health-related data, but you're really collecting some deep profiling data around um, mood, um, mood in different locations, you know, um, mood throughout the day, um, and, um, and and how that then correlates to um, data which can be used for commercial purposes down the track is, is a really interesting piece. From gait last week to mood this week, gets deeper and deeper. Now, finally, Dan, you're celebrating. Um, you're feeling a tad triumphalist with the news media bargaining code that you championed with my active support now being embraced in both the US and Canada. So are we ready for a global tour um, to show the world how to do this properly? Yeah, so... Um... Perhaps an obvious news uh, agenda item for me this week, but um, but nonetheless, let me give a bit of background for everyone. So there's, there's two substantial pieces of legislation forming in North America um, that are based on, on Australia's news media bargaining code. So, so firstly, in the US, um, a few months ago, uh, Democratic Senator uh, Amy Klobuchar introduced a, a piece of legislation called the, the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act. And effectively, what that would allow publishers to do is, is bypass the antitrust rules that, um, that prevent them from collectively bargaining with, with Google and, and Facebook. And it did receive bipartisan support, but it never went anywhere um, because people were, were, I think, concerned that it didn't go far enough. So last week, uh, the bill was strengthened and it was strengthened by adding uh, so-called final offer arbitration. And that is... Uh, taken directly from Rod Sims' uh, innovation as part of the News Media Bargaining Code, whereby if a deal isn't, isn't achieved between the publisher or publishers and uh, Google and or Facebook, then um, an independent arbitrator can choose the deal which is, um, which is most fair and, and that becomes a deal that is, that is binding between the parties. So um, it's, it's now been introduced uh, to the US bill. Uh, to be clear, it hasn't passed yet. It needs to go through a lot of debate, but it's, it's encouraging that it's going in that direction. And at the same time, last week, Canada introduced the Online News Act, which has a similar mechanism but it has actually addressed some of the criticism of the Australian legislation in that it's making the payments uh, consistent and transparent for the respective news organisations that, that bargain with Google and Facebook. And yeah, that's what it, I was going to ask you, Dan, like, because, you know, even its greatest fans, IEU, would not say it's gone smoothly in Australia and largely because of the politics around the takedown the fact the platforms haven't actually been designated. So in a way, these laws seem to even be, um, I'm not like more prescriptive than Australia's have ended up being, right? Yeah, there's two, there's two parts of this, which I think where they've learned, they've, they've perhaps taken the news media bargaining code legislation of Australia and, and, and perhaps made it better. The first one is certainly in Canada's cases in regards to transparency. So as I understand it, um, there is a, uh, a, a relatively set formula on how much Google and Facebook would be expected to pay to publishers based on a percentage of the costs that go into the newsroom, so the costs that go into producing the journalism. Um, and I'm privy to some conversations on this, by the way. I won't say what it is, but it's a, it's a substantial proportion, so it would, it would make a real difference. And the other part of it is, from the outset, the platforms, being Google and Facebook, are part of the legislation from the beginning. The difference with the Australian legislation, which I think everybody knows, but just in case, is... The news media bargaining code legislation has passed, and they, but no platform has actually been designated under the, the, legis the legislation. So Google and Facebook, there's a threat of making them fall victim to this uh, or be taken by this legislation, but they haven't actually been designated yet. And as a result of that, they've done deal with all the major publishers, including the Guardian. Um, full disclosure, 
but they haven't done deals with a lot of the smaller publishers or, or some of the larger publishers, which they should have, SBS, for example, being one, the conversation another. So this legislation in the US and Canada, um, Google and Facebook are part of it from the beginning. So I think it would, it would prevent that circumstance from happening, uh, happening in those markets. Okay. You got the floor, Lizzie. Oh, look, I just, you know, people know what my concerns are about this. And I, I think I'm, I'm particularly concerned that we don't have a duplication of what happened in Australia where it felt like their major media companies uh, essentially were siding with the government to, and then eventually with the big tech companies when um, everyone was on board with the proposal without necessarily listening to or contending with the criticisms associated with this kind of regime. I mean, I, I don't like the entrenchment of a data-centric approach to content creation and distribution. I, I want the um, media to be as diverse as possible and I don't want systems of compensation that give rise to entrenched major players having more resources than um, other kinds of media players, especially in an environment where the internet has allowed that kind of thing to occur as in a greater diversity of media, media than ever before and it's one of the great benefits of the internet. So, but do you... Do you do you recognise that there are more journalists now? Like that, Dan's hired more. There's more doing regional. Like anecdotally, it's really hard for outlets to find journalists at the moment because there are so many um, jobs. Yeah, well, that's interesting. That's actually not a new phenomenon in the sense that um, I've I've done a little bit of research into this. I wrote an article for the Fabians of all people uh, on this topic uh, in their magazine, and um, I did a bit of research on job advertisements in the journalism profession. And it is a bit more of a complex picture than you might imagine from... Um, no one gets an ad, a job from an ad in journalism. No, no, no. So vacancies and stuff like that, of course. But um, I, I suppose what I'm saying is I think the jobs of journalists have also changed and that's a function of how this uh, regulation works in that you do then become beholden to the content distribution model of platforms, which means the content that you produce and create... Um, does look different from what it might have looked in previous times. Now, there's responsible media organisations, The Guardian largely being one, I, I, I think, um, that, <laughs> that don't necessarily um, engage in the worst kind of behaviour. But there's plenty of other media organisations that have used this to scale up a certain kind of content manufacturing that then gets distributed in a particular way that's optimised for those platforms. And that is hugely negative in that it is about clickbait, but it's also about sensationalism. It's about um, creating uh, content that might allow people to find a particular rabbit hole, get sucked into it. You know, Sky News is the is the prime example, uh, a media organisation that has optimised itself for the online world and makes use of um, of. But, but surely with a more stable cost advantage. base, the news sites don't have to go chasing the clicks as hard. Like there is, is an that, argument but, that says stability leads to a, yeah, a stronger. I appreciate that's an argument. I'm not sure that's been borne out though. My, my observation, I mean, look, it's maybe too early to tell. It's not been that long that the bargaining code has been in place, but I, I'm not convinced that that stability will give rise to improved quality journalism. I think what we'll see is the tail wagging the dog, I suppose, uh, in terms of the objectives of this legislation. We'll see the social media companies and their algorithm for distribution determining what that journalism looks like, uh, not in a complete way, but certainly in quite an influential one. And that's a pretty big concern. Like 
there is obviously a problem that lots of people are trying to contend with, with the loss of gatekeeper status of journalists in the social media age. And we have to contend with that in different ways. I don't think we want to return to a situation where journalists were the only gatekeepers of information because that had a particular problem. But I think we also want to make use of the diversity and the fact that the internet allows a diverse media to flourish uh, and incentivize that rather than centralise the distribution of news, prioritise certain kinds of media companies as being the ones who are the arbiters of truth and that dominate um, news production, and then uh, allow social media companies to determine what that distribution model looks like. I think we've got to rethink some of these things. And this, I fear, is a piece of legislation that, or a proposal, policy proposal, as it's taken form in different countries, which hopefully will fix some of the problems that might have existed in Australia, but certainly doesn't push us in the right direction in my in my mind. Uh, but I think we do have to kind of test some of these assumptions as time goes on in Australia, and that's what I would like to see as well. Dan? Uh, one last point for me, um, or, or two quick points, actually. Just addressing what you, what you said there before, Lizzie, about um, the clickbait model of journalism. I, I would say that that is actually limited to the kind of journalism that is relying heavily on or primarily on advertising and, and therefore I, I think it's a problem of the internet not a problem of this legislation I think it would it exist with or without this legislation is it a problem of uh, journalism or advertising uh, well it's a pro if, if you are a, if you are an online publisher that relies exclusively on online advertising then the temptation to do clickbait journalism is always going to be there and that's 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 a fundamental issue that exists with the internet with or without this legislation is is, is the point but just on your last point, I think this is this is perhaps just a uh, not for the first time, perhaps is where, where we have a fundamental disagreement on this. I, I think that um, I've said this before: the best thing about the internet is everyone everyone became a publisher, and the worst thing about the internet is anyone became a publisher. And I would regard the kind of journalism that the mainstream news media organisations do, like the Guardian, but also a lot of the great the journalism that, that News Corp does as well is a different kind of content to what we see from some of the smaller players and therefore is more deserving of support. Journalism is a public good and it takes professionals to create it. And therefore, the fact that more money from the platforms is going to professional news organisations which have these journalistic norms, I think is uh, is a massive positive of the legislation, not a, not a negative. I would we're say gonna, that. Though. We're <laughs> going to leave it there. I, I don't think our, our positions are changing fast on, on that particular issue. And it's a really good discussion because... There is there is a meeting point, which is, I, I think, a common recognition that we need to improve the quality of our public discourse and try, try to find ways of doing that where traditional media that was built up in an industrial era is meeting head on with the information um, economy. Um, and to Lizzie's point, it will play out over a number of years. The testing will be done in real life. Now, I'm going to bring Carla in now for our deep dive. And um, Carla Wiltshire is, I'm going to call you the founder of the Centre for Well Digital Wellbeing, but also she's the CEO of the Migration Council of Australia. A bit like me, someone that has come to this area out of a sense of civic duty, I guess, a sense of um, lived alarm. Um, and as many of you in this room will know, once you get into the politics of technology, it is highly addictive. And so I'm really interested, Carla, in what got you hooked on this issue, and then we'll open into the broader discussion on addiction and technology. 
Thanks, Peter. Um, yes, I think hooked is probably the right way to term it. And as an example of addiction, I have on multiple occasions forgotten to pick my kids up from school because I was so engrossed into listening to a podcast on tech addiction. Um, if you're listening, Finn, Ella and Abby, I'm sorry again about that. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, I came to it probably from a few different avenues as Migration Council Australia. A lot of it really is in the social cohesion space and the impact of technology uh, in terms of changing social cohesion trends. Uh, but then also as the mother of three small kids um, and um, parenting during a digital age, uh, you know, some of the, the deep concerns that myself and my husband had around technology really sort of drove a fascination and interest in the topic. Yeah, let's talk about watching our kids grow up in this age. And as somebody that's got now teenage kids, I watched with a degree of alarm, which I think is similar to yours. You're a little bit earlier on the journey um, of this sense of being caught into a system that was designed to hold kids there for longer. Um, how's that played out in your life? Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting how early and how often we introduce um, uh, digital technology. And one of the conversations I was having the other day was the use um, that we have now of mobile phones as pacifiers. So our child's having a temper tantrum in a public area or they're about to lose it or we're in a cafe and we want some parent time, you know, instantly we hand them a mobile phone. Um, Here's Bluey Blue, we'll solve your problems for you. Um, and so one of the questions that we started to sort of ask fairly early on is what impact does that have on young brain development and particularly around um, and, and from a policy side very much, you know, in terms of reaching those emotional development milestones, particularly around emotional self-regulation, what impact does that have? Then we go through the teenage years and we start to kind of really understand uh, the way in which I think technology is changing neural pathways and this real question of um, neuroplasticity and, and how technology interacts with that sort of reward, um, risk-reward centres of our brains. The, oh, um, question, Carla. Yeah. Um, how would you, how, I don't know if this is too big a question to ask, but it might just be good to ask at this point. How would you define addiction? I, I One of the, my other hats is that I sit on the board of the Alliance for Gambling Reform here in Australia. So I'm big on kind of understanding the health impacts of something like gambling. I think there's a lot of crossover with uh, social media platforms, devices yep. in the digital age. But, you know, my also my understanding of addiction science is that it, changes a lot in terms of how we understand how it works and so I'd be curious to know what you define it to be or how you understand it particularly in the context of tech. And this is absolutely fascinating because this is this really big question about you know substance addiction we understand really well um, you know we know the neural pathways um, we can predict um, very much with a high degree of accuracy you know um, substance A is going to lead to um, this interaction with our risk reward centers it's going to lead to a dopamine release here um, but increasingly we also understand that for behavioral addiction and so there's this big debate going on in the scientific and, and generally in the medical community at the moment around sort of this notion of behavioural addiction and one of the first behavioural addictions is gambling that made it into um, the DSM-5 which is the classification of mental illnesses and, um, and other psychiatric terms but I think there is a mounting evidence to show that other forms of behavioural addiction and this is where social media addiction you know um, uh, internet addiction gaming addiction are really starting to gain traction certainly within the medical community there is that increasing sense that you're seeing the same pathways 
And I think, you know, one of the, the easiest ways to kind of sort of narrow down behavioural addiction is, um, you know, does the behaviour fulfil a deep need? Um, you know, do you have uh, a notion that you can't do without it? Uh, and do you pursue it while neglecting other aspects of your life? such as picking up your children from school. Um, so, you know, to some extent, I think those, those become sort of some of the key characteristics. Uh, but in terms of that risk-reward centre, uh, certainly a lot of the, the kind of cutting-edge research is starting to show that gambling, other behavioural addictions almost follow those same neural pathways. And, and some of the um, neuroreceptors in the brain and the, the sort of genetic predispos- predispositions for um, substance abuse you know, are the same predispositions that lead to behavioural addictions as well. I, 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 I perceive that you're a little sceptical of the addiction frame, Lizzie. So I, I, oh, may, I yes. may be assuming. So, so where do you Oh, take? well, it's, it's just very difficult, I think, sometimes to pass out what is addiction and what is, um, I guess, having to... A really, to really good game. <laughs> No, more like you, you have to use devices now to engage in the real world. It's virtually impossible not to. Just like drinking in Australia particularly, I feel like so much of our socialisation occurs around drinking. It is very difficult to kind of determine where the line is between addiction and, I suppose, responsible use in a context in which there's so many structural factors that give rise mm-hmm. to lots of engagement in the behaviour. And it may not be harming you in the sense that you get a lot out of it um, and the risk yeah. versus reward. But I, I'm, I just But think isn't it where it gets to the design? So where I sure. where, where I go is particularly, you know, and it's kind of almost a cliche now, but a teenager on Fortnite or another game, and I know there'll be gamers in this discussion, um, and I totally respect that adults gaming is they're you know absolute not, no, no problems with that but there are kids that 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 end up playing these games which are designed to keep them moving in deeper and using some of the same tricks as poker machines mm. random rewards um particularly and also that idea of an easy win and then sort of getting it harder and harder as it goes along a bit like a pokey so for those bits i i i actually I'm on Carla's um, ticket here, and I, I think particularly with games under 18s, like there should, like there there are classifications in terms of content, in terms of sexualized content and violence, but not around the design of of, of the games. And I, and I do think that we need to to confront that because my experience is that the immersion of kids into technology have huge flow on health effects as well. Um, kids that become really hardcore gamers stop doing sport. Like it doesn't need to be a catastrophization, you know, particularly through the pandemic. Network gaming was a great way of them keeping connected. So I'm not kind of saying mm. don't have it, but I'm saying if we if we think about creating safe spaces for kids and um, then they've got to be safe digital spaces as well. Yeah, yeah I'd agree with that. I think that's yeah. Would you what would you would you agree with that, Carla? How do you feel about yeah, it? Yeah, no, I, I do. I think I'd unpick the myth that because something is ubiquitous or you have to do it as part of your life, it doesn't mean that it's kind of moving into a territory of addiction because um, I think the two are sort of slightly differentiated. I think part of it, whether we're talking about gaming or whether we're talking about social media, we're really talking about probably three big features of design which give rise to um, uh, that level of 
uh, adaptivity. And one is that, you know, I think social media has really been designed, not just social media, but gaming, uh, with the idea of uh, the big win early. And it's this notion that, you know, the gambler that wins first up is the gambler that often becomes addicted. Um, so, you know, you get that huge, you start training neural pathways and you get that dopamine hit really early in terms of a lot of social media. You get that that buzz of validation. It's really interesting that, you know, Facebook usage really shot up after the like was introduced as uh, as one of the key concepts. Once the like came in and you could get a level of social validation, that validation gave you a dopamine hit and, you know, that really kind of went into sort of the, the neurological reward centre of your brain and started that kind of neuroplasticity pathway from um, started at forming and, and kind of self-reinforcing. You know, I think the second one is really, um, and this is a great one to unpick, but that, that risk-reward loop. Um, so, you know, the same centres of our brain, the same parts of our brain that really kind of go to that sort of reward um, cycle are also um, the same centres that kind of, you know, really uh, touch on that notion of risk. Uh, and so, you know, you're getting that really, uh, really strong amplification of a pleasure response. So, you know, if you always know you're going to get 10 likes. It's not nearly as exciting as posting something and not necessarily knowing what the response is going to be. You know, or likewise with gaming, you know, it's those games that where, you know, um, each level is a little bit hard or each, you know, each stage is unpredictable um, and you don't necessarily know whether you're going to make it or not. That, you know, really, really enforces that habit. And then I think that third kind of thing is that, you know, a lot of, a lot of tech is built with no stopping cues, which is really different from a lot of other things. You know, if you watch free-to-air television, an ad will come on and it's a stopping cue. Mm-hmm. Um, or the show will finish and it's a stopping cue. Ella, can um, I um, yeah. take take this up? A, uh, well, perhaps into a direction which I'm not sure if your if your studies have gone here, but I'd be interested in your perspective all the same. So, one of the things that I've um, struggled with and felt guilty about, to be honest, is I had kids and they became toddlers not long after the iPhone came out, and so I I, I was exactly that parent, you know, and and my, my wife was too, where we would. If our kid was throwing a tantrum in a public space, we would give them the phone and that would pacify them and it became all too easy and it became the default thing that we did. And it was sort of before anyone, I think, was really starting to think about the potential downsides of a lot of this stuff. Well, certainly we weren't at the time, put it, put it that way. But even now, and obviously I care about this stuff uh, given this forum, even now, I mean, if I reflect on the last two years of the pandemic, working from home, it was sometimes just the only way I could get work done was to give my kids an iPad and, and tell them to disappear for a while. And, and you know, and then two hours later, I'd come out of a meeting and forget that they were on it and, you know, they'd spend half their day on it. Now, my observation, and this is anecdotal and it could be completely wrong, I'd just be interested in your perspective on it, but my observation is um, they, my kids are just not as good people, not as friendly people, not as happy people when they've spent a huge amount of time staring at a screen. And I think, you know, certainly I relate to that. Probably we all do. If you spend a lot of time doing these things on social media, you feel pretty icky afterwards. Is there science to back that up? I mean, is, yeah. is this something which is which has been proven to be harmful to, to, to kids' behaviour and people's behaviour in general? Yeah, so one of the points you're picking up on, um, and there's not a lot, and we need a hell of a lot more research on this, but there was um, one particular study done, um, and what it did show uh, was reduced levels of empathy after use of technology. Um, so generally speaking, you know, having having social engagement, so social media engagement, but facilitated by technology, uh, reduces the level of, of empathy 
Um, and so that's one study. Um, and basically, and they've done a series of anecdotal studies as well, uh, one of which was um, they took kids to uh, a, um, uh, they measured kids um, on an empathy scale prior to going on camp and, and during a one-week camp took all of the mobile phones and all technology away and then measured empathy at the end of a camp. Uh, and um, and net empathy had increased. Now, it might also be that they all spent time together in a camp. So <laughs> I'm not sure how much you want to put stock in that. But, yeah, the, there is some emerging evidence to show that empathy connection in terms of, of device use. And, and what about the plus side then, Carla? So the, the other side of this that I've seen we, is uh, my son's well, a pretty introverted. Parental sanity. What's that, sorry? The other side's parental sanity. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's obviously that, that short-term benefit, but I've seen something else, which is, which is perhaps the, um, the one part of this, which perhaps I, I, I tell myself just to make myself feel better, but my son's a pretty introverted kid and he's used, um, you know, like, like a lot of kids he does, he, he does a lot of gaming, but he, there's, such social, there's such social things now, right? He's got all of his friends are on there. And my observation is that he's actually gone and formed friendships IRL from the gaming that he's been doing. Is, that, is, there, is there any evidence supporting anything like that happening or, or, or anything that you've seen where even use of social media leads to, leads to real relationships in the, in the real world? Yeah, um, Tinder. There's <laughs> <laughs> been even some marriage involved. Um, look, I, I think everyone has a very uh, different experience. Um, and so I, I don't, you know, I mean, I think we can kind of talk in generalisations and there's certainly some really kind of aggregate trends, but it doesn't necessarily... Um, take away from the fact that an individual experience can still be really positive um, and in certain circumstances and, and particularly, yeah, I think for shy kids, technology can be a really good facilitator uh, into forming real-life friendships mm. as well. I only made the point that the, the word addiction is a really loaded one and there's other ways that might be more useful um, of approaching it. It did, it did strike me it's a really useful contribution. Um it, it feels to me that part of this, and interested in your thoughts here, Lizzie, is that um, as humans, we are consuming more and more information than we ever have before. There's a sense that often we drown in the information, but it's really hard to get ourselves out of that headspace as well. Like, how, how do you classify it when you think about the amount of time you're spending in this kind of world? Yeah, I, I understand the... Um the political connotations associated with addiction. Although, you know, having something recognised in the in the manual that determines, essentially serves as a resource for determining whether a, a mental health condition exists, has a whole bunch of functionality and utility um, that is worth remembering. But I, I do understand it's a political kind of term too. And in some ways I feel like these behavioural addictions, particularly, you know, gambling being an obvious one, recognising it as a, something that does give rise to harm is actually a huge step forward in terms of understanding how we might wish to regulate it, you know, from a harm minimisation perspective rather than requiring people to take individual responsibility. And so that I think is, you know, I, I mean, I'm not a sceptic of the idea of, of addiction for what it's worth, but I do appreciate that there are structural factors we need to think about um, and the focus ought to be on harm minimization rather than say individual responsibility for managing the harm that comes from overuse of any kind of substance or or over you know too much of a certain kind of behavior uh, and so I do think that you know it's really interesting what you're talking about Carla about um you know breaks in play or breaks in you know natural breaks in a particular form of engagement um, but there's also you know potentially issues around 
alienation that that gives rise to their pe- people's desire to avoid those breaks or to engage in conduct over the long term. And um, I guess I think there is some utility in trying to regulate from a design perspective healthy behaviour um, without also patronising people who use these products or who need to use them um, because, you know, like Dan's kid, you know, they might be shy or maybe they, you know, online spaces are a real refuge from them, for them, from the difficulties they're facing in their everyday life. There's a community for them online that they can't access in their real life and that is supportive and empowering for them. And that is one of the other great benefits, I think, of the social media age. I don't think we should take that in isolation as a justification for allowing design features that do not encourage healthy use. But I think we do have to be careful about patronising people for for using devices too much. And so the focus I would like to see is less on individual responsibility and more on design principles and regulating for that. But that is a challenge. I mean, Carla, do you feel like that is something that governments could do, regulate for Well, I was going to jump in here. So China has set us a model of government regulation. Let's let's look at what China's doing and then work out what we should be doing in our remaining eight minutes. China China has set a model. Um, I'm not sure it's a model that any democratically elected government in Australia would follow, Um, but it has limited um, gaming in particular uh, to three hours per week by the under-18s, which has huge economic implications as well as social implications. I mean, it probably is an indicator that from a Chinese government perspective, um, there is a strong concern around the impact on a generation growing up without any form of tech regulation. Um, So, you know, people always typically make the observation of the Chinese that they think in terms of, you know, the next century rather than the next election cycle. Uh, so I think, you know, it is a question about whether or not this is very forward thinking. Um, but then I think there's also some really big questions about how effective it is as a piece of regulation and how easy it is to get around it. Oh, just um, on that point, just on that point is, is so I, I take your point, this is not something that a democratically elected government is likely to introduce anytime soon, but just taking aside the autocratic nature of this, do you <laughs> think... that. Park that for a second. Park that, that small issue over to the left there for a second. But do you think that this will actually result in beneficial outcomes for those kids? I think that kids who are highly, highly addicted are going to find ways around it. And my understanding is for about 35 UN, you can now purchase an adult's entry into gaming for a two-hour period. So there, there are certainly ways around it. Um, there's also growing now addiction to watching other people play games um, for long stretches of time. So, I, you know, I think in some senses it's a hard measure, but it's not a measure that necessarily goes to some of the, the root cause issues. And I think probably you need to put some of the real world social policy, softer side of kind of um, regulation around um, the piece as well. So what are some of the other potential tools in the box here? Yeah, so I think that's really interesting. But I think, you know, part of it is that to some extent one of the great antidotes is real-world deep connection. So upping our level of engagement in terms of sporting and in terms of other activities that bring us together. And I think possibly coming out of COVID, that's something that's definitely needs to be looked at. That's not to say that we shouldn't be looking at tech-based regulation as well. I'm not sure that, yeah, I'm I'm not even sure how in in a country like Australia you go about a blanket ban like that. It just really wouldn't work. I'm not sure it's working in China either, but 
sorry, my, my last point. My point was just simply would limiting, I guess as a parent, let me ask it another way, as a parent, would limiting your child's use to three hours a week have uh, substantial benefits for the, for, the, for the child in question? I think the evidence would suggest probably yes. Um, but um, it's interesting. Um, Adam Alter, who wrote um, a book called Irresistible at the start of it before he wrote the book, went out and did a survey of every single person he could find. Um, and one of the questions he asked is, would you rather have your phone uh, shatter into a million pieces and break onto the ground or would you rather break a small bone in your hand? Um, and everyone under a certain age went for, I would rather break a small bone in my hand, um, which I, I think is very telling in terms of the level of addiction that, that the Chinese government is possibly trying to um, to regulate around. Lizzie? My, my, I suppose my only worry is like, you know, it's tricky to parent, especially in a context in which, you know, we work really long hours and, you you know, not everyone gets enough parental leave to be able to care for their children. So part of it is also that kind of structural problem rather but, than but saying... also But also the integration of technology into education. So I've, mm-hmm. I've said before that we're, we're now in a world that once a kid reaches um, not even high school but the end of primary school, and you're about to find this out, Lizzie, um, the, the best library in the world and the most toxic candy store are the one device and there are no guardrails in there and you're meant to work out a way of guiding your kids through that and it's really, really hard. Well, I mean, really I think hard. it is actually one of the critical skills for the 21st century, being able to navigate the use, of, the use of technology, which you will have to do every day of your life, most likely, um, and avoid it becoming harmful to you. I mean, this is the, the great skill you've got to give them. I think we could produce more resources, but sometimes I think we look at this problem as a problem with tech rather than a problem with... with um, yeah, well, so how society is structured, where people have to work long hours, get paid less in this country. I mean, I think... Adam Bant would tell me what the uh, wage growth rate is, but I'm not going to Google it now. But the point being that uh, there's bigger social problems that give rise to parents looking for quick fixes to to keep their children entertained. And it's not necessarily a problem with technology, but it's also how we deal with the question of parenting, of, of social engagement, of investment in the social infrastructure outside of tech spaces that allows for a more functioning, healthy society. I agree, but I think to Dan's point, it's also the question about when do you introduce technology? Because most other addictive substances, we really do try and hold it back for quite a long period of time, um, both because, you know, that that period of judgment uh, and that capacity to be able to self-regulate emotions, to be able to kind of um, deal with the complexities of the digital world and, and, and all of the hooks uh, mm-hmm. that really um, have the potential to get their hooks into you, you know, it really comes with age as well. My son made it mandatory that he had to have an iPad for his schooling from year four. This is a state school, by the way, from wow. and and it, and it was required. And it was, you know, if you didn't do that, they would lend you one at school, but you're at a massive disadvantage. I mean, and, it's, and it's big, appalling. The big shift was 15 years ago, there was a computer lab and people would go in, kids would go in and use the computer and then it was vendor driven, bring your own device. And now, you know, yeah. Anyway, we could go on for hours on this, but thanks, um, Carla, for being part of Burning Platforms today. You've been listening to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. It was recorded live at a virtual town hall on April 14. If you'd like to attend one of these discussions in real life, you can register at centreforresponsibletechnology.org.au. Burning Platforms was produced on Gadigal Gland by Jennifer Macy. Talk again in a fortnight. 